Okay, Duke fans, welcome to the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Today is Saturday, December 20th. That's when we're recording this. I am your host, Jason Evans, and my co-host with me this week is Donald Wine. Hey, Donald, how's it going? Hey, what's going on, Jason? Not much, not much. I'm just sitting here getting ready to talk about Duke basketball, perhaps my favorite thing in the world to do. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, we're going to do it by Donald and I shutting up because we've got a special segment to kick things off this week. Our compatriot Sam Klein got to chat with Laura Keeley, who is the Duke beat reporter for the News and Observer. And let's get right to Sam's conversation with Laura about all things Duke. Okay, so after our episode last week that was highlighted by a fascinating discussion with Dan Kane talking about the academic scandal at UNC, uh, this week we have another News and Observer reporter uh, joining us. Laura Keeley covers Duke Athletics for the NNO, although I would say that her biggest claim to fame is that she's a fellow member of the Duke class of 2011. Uh, she brings bringing an in-depth coverage of Duke uh, all year long, and we're grateful that she's taken some time out of defending her preseason All-ACC football selections this morning to join us. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so before we get going, I want to let all the listeners know that we're recording this interview on Tuesday the 16th. Um, so we're not going to be discussing what happened in the UConn game that is in the future for us, but in the past for all of you. Um, but uh, that being said, let's go ahead. Um, so, Laura, kind of starting off, um, generally speaking, what are your impressions of the team to this point? Uh, are you surprised by anything that you've seen uh, so far from Duke this year? You know, uh, Mike Krzyzewski said it last week after the Wisconsin game during kind of the finals week break that even he has been pleasantly surprised by how far along this team is so early. And I would say that definitely kind of lines up with what I was thinking. You know, I I knew they were going to be talented. You know, there's no question about that with the three freshmen they brought in. But to be able to go to Wisconsin, you know, a veteran team coming off the Final Four, and a team that doesn't lose at home. You know, they've won over 90% of their home games uh, under Bo Ryan. You know, to go to Wisconsin, shoot 65%, and play good defense and win by 10 was more than I thought this team was going to be able to accomplish this early uh, in the season. So pleasantly surprised so far. and. Uh, you know, I think kind of the sky's the limit as far as potential on this team. Great. Um, and how would you say that this team compares to other Duke teams that you've covered uh, the last few years? Yeah, it's very different than last year's team, which is a good thing for anyone who has a vested interest in Duke progressing far in the tournament. Yeah. You know, <laughs> by this point last year, we already had seen that that team was kind of fatally flawed as far as on um, the defensive end of the floor. You know, the Vermont game, was in early November or at least mid-November, and, uh, you know, you're just like, wow, you know, Vermont can cut through these guys and they can't really pick up switches, and this might be a problem going forward. And it was, uh, you know, pretty much in every loss they had after that. But, you know, seeing how this team defends, you know, against Wisconsin, they figured out this kind of the principles of the switching man-to-man defense and just, you know, they have, they have it. And I know that's cliche and hard to describe, but... And when the going gets tough, you know, Tyus Jones gets better and Okafor gets better and guys make plays. And that's definitely different than last year's team where, you know, kind of when the going got tough, you'd see this kind of deer in headlights look. You know, you saw that at Notre Dame and at Clemson especially. But so, yeah, I, you haven't seen, you really haven't seen any red flags with this group yet. Uh, you know, they're, they're well put together. Having Okafor as a true center has kind of a bailout ability for this team. You know, if shots aren't falling from the outside, you can kind of look to feed him even more. 
And so I think so far so good, and they are different than last year's team, and they're certainly different from the team two years ago when it was led by, you know, Mason Plumley, Seth Curry, and uh, Ryan Kelly. That was was a veteran group that you know was was pretty well put together, but was just kind of limited talent wise. And this team doesn't have any such restrictions. Cool. Um, do you think? What, what do you think is the has changed the face of the defense? Because a lot of the guys from last year, like Quinn Cook and Emil Jefferson, it looks like they're playing better defense than they were last year, and and that was their huge problem last year. Um, do you think that? Do you think that? Uh, or I guess what's changed on defense for them? Well, I think I think they kind of the coaches kind of stripped down the defensive principles they teach. That was kind of I think one of the main tangible points that came out of the kind of soul searching for the program that started after the loss to Mercer. You know, Shesky said that everything was going to be up for review and under review, and they were going to look at how they did everything. One of the the major tangible takeaways was, you know, the defense needs to be simplified because if you're teaching it to primarily guys that are going to be there for one year, they need to be able to pick it up faster. You know, you don't have time for them to figure out come junior or senior year, oh, we should be doing it like this. So I think the scheme has gotten a little simpler. Um, Having... Okafor and Winslow, though, really are the two main differences between defense this year and last year. And just having a rim protector just makes everybody's life in front of him defensively easier. You know, guys, you don't have to worry as much about cutters like coming into the lane or backdoor cuts or anything like that. So Okafor will be there. And then Winslow's a guy that can be a lockdown defender, and you can just kind of sick him on the opponent's best player and that guy's going to be stifled, and that makes everybody else's job easier. It makes it easier for Quinn Cook and Tyus Jones to put pressure on the ball higher up, which is going to disrupt the flow of the opposing team's offense, and it all just works much better, and that's kind of the bottom line. Got it. Cool. Um, what? So taking it to a sort of unfortunate piece of news this week, what do you make of Shami Ojale's decision to transfer um, is, it, is it all about playing time? Is there something else that kind of we didn't see? What did, what did you see there? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ever a huge surprise when kind of your 10th man on the bench decides that he wants to play more, and especially when it's a guy, you know, at Duke where the 10th man was somebody that, you know, he was the parade national high school player of the year, his senior year, and used to, you know, average 40 points a game in his small town Kansas League, and, you know, he, he's, he's talented. He has raw, or he, he at least has a lot of raw ability, and, uh, you know, you can look at the depth chart. The minutes weren't going to come from this year. I'm sure if you looked at Sean Obi, you know, who's redshirting this year in practice and saw that, you know, that was another guy that was going to play in front of him next year in addition to Chase Jeter coming in. And, and there just wasn't really going to be time if he wanted to play meaningful minutes. And so I think you saw, you know, in the release where, you know, Krzyzewski said, you know, totally fine with this. We wish him well. And it'll be interesting to see where he lands. Um but I hope for his sake that, you know, he kind of takes his time and, and takes a spot where he can play meaningful minutes and, you know, he goes to a program where they are kind of more willing to take on developmental projects. Just Duke doesn't have to do that right now, and so they're not going to. And, uh, you know, I think it's you know really a, a non-factor as far as having any impact on this year's team. Do you think that that transfer and the ones that we've seen the last couple of years is now just the norm with the way that these kids get recruited and all sort of expect to play if they're if they're high major players? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, you look at all the guys that have left, you know, uh, Mike Benajay, Alex Murphy, uh, you know, Ole Chiz going way back. You know, if, if you want to play, 
and you're not good enough to earn the minutes you want to at Duke, then you should go elsewhere. You know, it's 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 pretty easy to figure out. If, if you're not going to be able to beat out the guys in front of you, and the thing you have to remember is that these guys have that chance every day in practice. You know, you saw somebody like Matt Jones kind of earn more time this year. Who would have thought that, you know, he would have been any type of factor? And, you know, he really pushed for more time throughout the fall practice. So they have their chances. If it's just not working out, then, you know, and, and playing is kind of your main priority, then, yeah, you should look elsewhere. Cool. Um, getting bigger picture. Um, there's been a lot of discussion recently last few years, I guess, about the changing nature of college sports, um, especially in the, um, in the revenue sports, basketball and football. Um, where do you think that the model is going, like paying players and things like that? And do you have any idea how that might affect Duke uh, going forward? <laughs> so how much time do you have? <laughs> um, <laughs> give us yeah, answer you think you have today in 2014, and then we'll ask you again next year. Yeah, you know, I, I think, obviously, the model as we know it right now is crumbling. There's just, you know, and this is something that, you know, Mike Krzyzewski has talked about on several occasions. You know, the biggest change from when he started you know, at Duke 35 years ago and now is just the amount of money involved. You know, there, there just wasn't the money back kind of in the glory days of the ACC, you know, in the late 80s with Tim and Terry Holland at Virginia and Dean Smith at North Carolina and Jim Bobano at NC State, you know, those guys are all good buddies, and they weren't all millionaires, you know. It was just, it was just a different feel. And now it's just there's just so much more money. Everyone makes so much more money. It's just so much more business-like. And, you know, there's all this money flowing around everywhere except the players. And that's just a totally unsustainable system. Um, you know, I think that schools are going to – I think cost of attendance at this point is a given. And, you know, that's going to be – you know, when you, you add it up, probably seven figures that schools need to come up with. And, you know, obviously Duke has concerns about how they're going to come up with that money. Um, but, you know, small schools like Wake Forest are also super concerned with how they're going to come up with that money. So it will be interesting. And, you know, as people kind of try to become more and more exclusive, you know, you've seen the Power Fives do it. Um, you know, what's going to stop Alabama from, you know, how long is Alabama going to want to be held to the same standard as Wake Forest? You know, seriously, Alabama can do so much more. They have so much more money. You know, I, I think we're just going to keep seeing this kind of circle of powerful teams grow smaller and smaller. And, you know, it's no big surprise that football's driving the revenue engine right now. So, you know, schools like Alabama, schools like Michigan, schools like Texas, they're going to be able to do more than, you know, the, the Dukes and even North Carolina of the world. So, It'll be interesting. Um, I do think more money is coming to the players sooner rather than later. And, you know, it's quite frankly, it's a change long overdue. So, so we'll see. It's definitely uh, exciting, interesting, and uncertain times in college sports. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be looking at. And I, I think it's particularly interesting to examine that in the, you know, this year, Duke is, you know, putting a lot of money towards renovating the football uh, facility and it's I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how that affects things down the road because who knows in you know 10 20 years what the viability of division one football at a small school like Duke is going to be I hope it's around but um, but uh, uh, I'm not sure yeah you know and, and Kevin White to his credit pretty much the second he got here figured out that 
you know, Duke was, was going to need to take some major steps to be a viable Division One football program because otherwise, if they weren't going to be able to show that they could compete, you know, at an ACC level, then they were going to get left behind. And you saw it almost happen to Kansas uh, when the Big 12 almost fell apart, that, you know, Kansas, Kansas was going to be without a home. And that's kind of ridiculous to think about from the Kansas basketball perspective. But, you know, what is Kansas offense for football? And that's where the money is. So, you know, credit Duke and, and Kevin White and, and David Cutcliffe for, you know, doing what they need to do to try to position the school to be competitive, you know, where the money is. Yeah, and when, when we were – Jason and I were previewing uh, UConn last week, we, we pointed out that UConn is like Kansas, you know, major basketball yep. program that's now sort of left out in the cold conference-wise because um, they couldn't figure out, you know, how to get into a conference that, that maintains, you know, being really good at football. So. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, all right, uh, moving on. Um, we've got a few questions for you, you and sort of your career. Um, so the first is uh, you covered Duke once as a uh, Chronicle reporter a few years ago. Um, what would you say is the difference between being, you know, writing for the student newspaper and then writing for, for a local, you know, professional newspaper? Sure, yeah. Um, and I know that this, the Chronicle has changed so much from when I was there from uh, 2007 to 2011. But, you know, when I was at the Chronicle, our theory in the sports section was to try to get, you know, as many people involved as possible, as many people as wanted to. And so, you know, anyone who had written for a year was pretty much eligible to cover, you know, at least one, two, maybe three men's basketball games. So we didn't have a beat system covering men's basketball when I was at the Chronicle. And it was a decision that I agreed with that model. Um, you know, Duke is not like a pre-professional journalism school. It's not like UNC. It doesn't have a Jade school. It's really, you know, the Chronicle is really staffed by people who are doing it just kind of for enjoyment's sake and because they like it and they want to do it, not because they're necessarily angling for a career in journalism. So, you know, I would say that there's, you know, a pretty significant difference between what I did at the Chronicle and what I do now, you know, for the News and Observer. You know, being a beat person means that you're always on call, you know, whenever anything Duke-related happens, it's my responsibility, you know, to deal with it, to figure it out, to tell people what it means, and, and to do so quickly. So, you know, that's it's a definite uh, difference than when you're, you know, at the Chronicle, but, you know, you look at what some of the journalists and, you know, what some of my colleagues at the Chronicle have gone on to do now, the places I write for, it. we obviously, <laughs> we weren't too far out in left field with what we needed to be doing, so... Yeah, it, it's different, and uh, but I I feel that you know I learned a lot of really useful, interesting things that you know continue to help me to this day. Uh, do you think that people should be reading the Chronicle uh, Duke basketball coverage, or should they just be reading you? Yeah, no, I mean I would encourage people to read from a variety of sources. Uh, you know, a variety of good sources. I'm not a huge Bleacher Report fan, but uh, <laughs> you know that's just me. But there are a lot of good people uh, that are producing you know, original content about Duke basketball, about triangle basketball, and, you know, the Chronicle is certainly one of those sources. So, yeah, I would encourage people to have kind of a, a steady, wide variety of diet for when they get their news and form their opinions. Um, so uh, when you were a student at Duke, you said that you, you know, you weren't covering Duke basketball full-time the way you are now. Um, I would imagine that when you were in college, you were a bigger Duke basketball fan. Would you say that um, covering them professionally has changed your the way that you see them sort of as an alumnus and a fan. Um, we last week when we talked to Dan Kane, he said that 
covering the UNC scandal has more or less ruined the um, you know the rooting interests for him in the in in triangle football and basketball. Yeah, you know, it, it, Dan's right. Watching how the sausage gets made, it, it's certainly ugly. It's probably uglier than you know most people who just watch the stuff on TV realize. And, and what I tell people is, you know, I feel about sports like a lot of people feel about religion, and that very <laughs> agnostic. You know, whatever happens, happens. You know, I hope for my sake, what happens is interesting. And, you know, interesting means different things. You know, like last night, let's take the Elon game. You know, Duke won by a lot. They weren't particularly crisp. And, you know, Shesky kind of was critical of them afterwards. And that was interesting because he's not normally critical of Duke teams afterwards, win or lose, if he can help it. So, that became interesting. And, you know, was was anything on the court particularly interesting? I mean, Okafor played really well, but, you know, that wasn't the main focus or main takeaway of the game. So, while other people might have been bored watching, I was kind of fascinated with other stuff that developed and the talking points that came out of it. So, you know, it's it's totally a different way to look at sports, you know, when you're writing about it. And, you know, I just kind of, it's my job to react to what happens. So I just kind of sit back and take notes and whatever whatever happens, happens. Uh, looking at, at Mike Krzyzewski from the time that you started covering him in back in 2007 till now, have you seen anything change about him? Um, and do you have any... Uh, funny stories that you can tell us about about covering him. Yeah, so 07 was kind of right when the Duke program kind of had a, a come to Jesus moment, almost. You know, it, was, it kind of in the aftermath of the of the VCU loss uh, the year prior to in the first round of the NCAA tournament, where I think their eyes were really opened at kind of the perception problem Duke had. Just you know, they, they were taken aback by how viscerally you know people. Rooted against them and how excited they were when Duke lost, and so from, from the top on down, which obviously starts with Mike, um, you know there was more of an effort to kind of try to put their best foot forward. And you know, he's he's still not super available when you compare his availability to other college coaches, but he, he's definitely come a long way since kind of 2007. Uh, you know, he's he, he's obviously a very smart guy, and so you know if you if you ask good questions of him afterward, like, you'll get pretty good answers. You know, he's obviously, you know, one of the best basketball coaches ever. He knows the game inside and out. And so it's always enjoyable, you know, to kind of get insights from him and see see stuff like that. Um, probably one of, the, one of the funnier moments, and I, I don't think he or the Duke people fully realized what they were doing. But uh, so last year, after the Mercer loss, a few days afterwards, we get an email from Duke that, wants to have a press conference. And this is very unusual. You know, this is the only other time I've known to be where he kind of called an impromptu press conference was earlier this year after the, the Yahoo Sports article. But so, you know, last year before that had happened, this is the first time that we've ever just kind of gotten this out of the blue, like, Kay's going to speak thing. So we're like, all right, it's kind of weird. And so then we go, like, they're serving lunch, which is very unusual for basketball. All of a sudden, like, Jeff Capel and the other assistant coaches come by and get lunch, and everybody's being chatty, and, you know, all, all, us reporters are all looking at each other, like, what is going on? Like, why are people being, like, friendly? <laughs> you know, what bomb is about to be dropped on us? Um, then, like, other people started cycling in that didn't necessarily need to be there, and then Mike comes around, he's shaking hands, he's all friendly, and so we're all sitting there freaking out that, like, he's about to announce his retirement or something. Because it's a very reporter thing to do, to go to kind of, like, the most doomsday scenario the one that's going to produce, like, the most work for you or whatever. And so then, <laughs> finally, 
you know, somebody asks one of the Duke uh, SID PR people, like, well, what's going on? And they're like, <laughs> they're just being friendly. And so then we all kind of just laughed, and, you know, he had his kind of State of the Union, everything up for review press conference, and we all wrote that story. But it was it was just kind of funny, the range of emotions, just, uh, you know, from showing up, things being out of the ordinary, and uh, and us going doomsday, but it really being kind of nothing at all. So that. It's one of the more amusing stories, I would say, from, uh, from my tenure covering Duke. Uh, following on that, do you get a sense of when he thinks he's going to retire or it's full steam ahead for the time being? Yeah, I don't think it's anytime soon. I think, I think he feels great. I, don't, you know, I, I, think, you know, I do think the USA basketball stuff really has revitalized him. Um, you know, he gets energy from being around kind of the best players and learning from the best guys. And, you know, they, they've him and Jeff Capel have said, you know, some of the defensive stuff they're doing this year is stuff they picked up from, uh, you know, Tibbs, the the Bulls coach that was uh, one of their assistants for this summer Team USA thing. So, you know, it, it's kind of crazy when you think about how he's a, you know, he's a 67-year-old man. He's no spring chicken, but, you know, he's, after every game, they immediately go and watch film. He's up till 3 or 4 in the morning on a regular basis, and then, you know, he's right back at it the next day. So, you know, I, I don't think he has any plans of slowing down or stopping. And I think it's going to be like that for, for a while. Um, well, who would you say uh, is your favorite person associated with the program to interview gives the best stories or uh, sort of is nicest to you? Any, any qualifier that you want to put on? You know, I've always really enjoyed dealing with Jeff Capel. Um, you know, we deal with the assistants a fair amount at Duke just because they can talk and, they are more accessible, and, you know, Jeff really gets it. He obviously has been a head coach before, so he understands, you know, kind of the media obligations and necessities that come with the position of, you know, being the point man for a program. And he's he's really good at what he does. You know, he, he's Duke's, you know, best recruiter behind Mike, obviously, but, you know, is, is one of the primary reasons that, you know, Tyus Jones and Okafor and players like that are here. And, you know, you, and you can see why, you know, you can see how, you know, kids would enjoy building relationships with him. And, and, and so, you know, anytime you can talk to Jeff and ask Jeff anything about basketball or, you know, any of the players, it, it's always a, a fun, interesting conversation that, you know, kind of inspires you to go write good things. Do you think that Capel is soon to be a head coach again? No, I hope for his sake. I, I, I think, you know, he, it's been a, a good break to come back here and kind of recharge and, you know, gather new material and new ideas. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think Jeff's getting the itch to go, you know, run his own show again, and you can't blame him. And, you know, he can afford to be selective. He doesn't have to kind of jump at, you know, kind of the first or any opportunity that comes at him. So, so yeah, I do think that's coming. Um, but I think you have to kind of, kind of wish him well that that's what he wants to do, then he should go do it. Yeah, certainly his his you know Duke assistant predecessors who have gone on to new jobs all seemed like they left a year or two after people really expected them to because they were waiting for those for those you know positions that that really suited them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we're gonna wrap it up with one uh, generic football question. How excited are you to be uh, spending part of your Christmas time in El Paso? You know, you might have asked that question to the person who was most thrilled with the El Paso assignment because my parents live in Dallas, so I will just get to go, you know, spend Christmas with them in Dallas 
It is a much easier and much to my boss's delight, much cheaper flight from Dallas to El Paso than from Raleigh to El Paso. So it worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> you Very know, good. easy flight, just back and forth to Dallas. And, uh, you know, it's the, the Sun Bowl, I've heard it's a really well-run bowl. And, you know, you're up in the mountains. It's a beautiful setting. So, hey, you know, I'm not going to complain. Excellent. Well, that, you have a great outlook on it. Um, Laura Keeley, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We can find your work uh, online at newsobserver.com. We were reminded by your colleague last week that the paper is also still in print and can be picked up in physical copy. Um, so that's great. Uh, you're on Twitter, at Laura Keeley. Um, so thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, great. Wow, Donna, that was a great conversation Sam had with Laura. We're really lucky to have had her on and uh, really glad that Sam was able to get um, get with her and talk about all those amazing things. The thing I th took the most away from this was her comment about Duke's defense and the value of having a rim protector. Um, Jahil Okafor and Justice Winslow, she pointed out, are guys who can get up there and take away easy baskets. And uh, it's just something Duke hasn't had in the past. And, and I loved her comment about Kay making things, especially on the defensive end, a little bit simpler um, uh, from past years. I mean, that's some great insight from Laura. What, what was your favorite takeaway? Uh, you know, I think she was very informative on, on a lot of things. I, I kind of particularly uh, liked the um, Coach Kay story that she had about how uh, after last season, he called the magic press conference and how uh, it's kind of funny to see on the other side, you know, because a lot of people were talking about that press conference and what was going to come down. And I'm glad to know that uh, even the reporters were kind of in the dark about what was going on. So uh, it's kind of funny to see her recreate that day um, that kind of had everybody, you know, thrown for a loop for a few minutes until Coach K, you know, trots out and just kind of says, oh, no, we're just going to talk about Duke basketball for a little while. Yeah, that was a great story. You're right. I love I love hearing about how the sausage is made. Yes, um, exactly. On the journalistic end, uh, and you know, and the last takeaway I had from her um, from the conversation when she mentioned she brought up the question, and this really speaks to the future of college college sports in general, not just college basketball. When she said, "Why should Alabama adhere to the same standards, the same rules?" as someplace like Wake and Duke. I mean, these are schools that have completely different missions, um, especially athletically. I, I was like, wow. I, I mean, that that's an eye-opener. That That's something that makes you think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just the way that she kind of, I mean, it opens up a whole new conversation about, you know, money in college athletics and paying athletes. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that with that just one comment when she was discussing about how much money places like Texas and Michigan and, and, and Ohio State and Alabama have um, compared to the, the Wakes and the Dukes of the world, um, how, you know, one day they could just get up and say, you know what, we're going to do things our way and we have the money to do so. So um, I, that think, I think that that statement was, you know, everything and, and kind of uh, I think we could go on for days about, about just her, what she discussed. Yep, yep, but we're not going to. We're going to move on to uh, reflecting on the big game from this past week, Duke against UConn. Um, the Devils, of course, came away with a hard-fought 10-point win. I, I thought this was the toughest victory, the toughest game we've had all season. It, it you know, it wasn't the toughest opponent, um, but I actually, in some ways, felt like Wisconsin, we, you know, handled better. I, I thought we looked better against Wisconsin. It was a, it wasn't as hard a game as the UConn game was. Donald, what were your big takeaways on that uh, from that UConn victory? I, I mean, it was a really tough game. Um, you know, it wasn't one of those games where you felt easy about 
anything. Even when we started out the second half with a 15-2 run, um, you kind of knew that we were just kind of holding off. But what I was most proud of was how no matter what happened during the game, our team kept its focus. Our team kind of was resilient, even, you know, and it's hard to say that about a team that was up most of the game. But even as, you know, UConn clawed back, they would get some life and then we would have a big play by Ty Jones or Emil Jefferson or Julio Okafer that would kind of shut not only the team up, but the crowd up. And uh, I think that is really what I enjoyed most about the game is that they just, you know, never quit. And even they kind of weathered all the battles and, and, you know, at the end it was still a 10 point victory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of my big takeaways, this is a team that has so many guys capable of doing important things on both ends of the floor. Um, and it's not just that we got balanced scoring, you know, all five of our starters in double figures. It was that at various times I felt like every one of them stepped up when we needed, you know, a key moment uh, and they were able to produce some things. I mean, Justice Winslow's tip in late in that game. I didn't think that Winslow had quite as good a game as he's had in some other games. Um, felt like he was forcing it a little bit more than usual. Uh, but his tip in late in that game off that missed free throw, that was the that was the moment where we could finally go and take yeah. a little bit of a breath. That was the moment that sort of sealed the victory. And, and then there were some other guys that just, I, I mean, you know, Emil Jefferson, uh, what a what a 13 rebounds against a team that is that really hit the boards hard uh, is not easy to rebound against. Um, Emil does all the little things for us. You know, he had a couple blocks to go with it. Really, really nice game from him. And you know, with the inside presence that they did have, that kind of you know kind of was non-existent. Um, that something wasn't that wasn't expected. We still out rebounded them. I think it was 43 to 27. So. Um, that is, you know, remarkable that, you know, Emil Jefferson was, was doing, you know, getting boards. Julia was doing his usual boarding. Uh, even Marshall Plumley, when he came in, wasn't, you know, was very effective on the defensive end and was holding their big men to not, you know, making sure that they weren't, you know, bringing them back in the game. They were, you know, the, the people off the bench were just as big a spark as our starters were in this game. Yes, even though they didn't score any points, they found other ways to contribute. I completely agree. Uh, yeah, especially Marshall uh, at the defensive end. This is a Duke team that, in contrast, boy, I can't even remember. Probably we have to go back almost to the, the Sheldon Williams kind of years to find a Duke team that was this tough inside, this difficult to uh, to on, on opposing offenses on the inside in terms of, of presence, rim protection, which we talked about a little while ago, Laura. Laura Keeley talked about it for us, uh, but it's not just rim protection; it's ability to rebound. It's a physical inside. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think yeah, you have to probably, probably back to at least a decade or so ago to find a Duke team that was was like this on the interior. And it's a nice, pleasant change because we were used to being like the big finesse team and everything, you know. Absolutely, and, and you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of funny to see the shoe on the other foot. You know, teams relying on the three. I mean, you know, Elon. Um, where we go back a little bit to the game on Monday, Elon, you know, the reason why they were while tough out of it pretty quickly is because they couldn't make any threes. They weren't going inside uh, and challenging Winslow and, and, and Jefferson and, and Okafer. And you could see that a little bit against UConn as well. They were, they were at a certain point, they started settling for jump shots and they weren't making them um, because they knew when they came into the paint, they were going to be met with a nice brick wall uh, of, of, you know, of guys. So I think that is a, a welcome change from previous years. Yes, and it's gonna. It bodes well for Duke in the future. Um, uh, my last thing about the UConn game, and then we can move on. Um, 
I, I, I love I love it when we win games where we don't shoot well. I prefer us to shoot well and, and win games. But you know, when you get those victories against you know a pretty good team, UConn, they aren't the national championship contender they were last year, but they're still a pretty good team. We got a victory where we shot thirty-seven and a half percent from the field, twenty-six percent from three. Usually, we know Duke's going to be better than that. We've been better than that almost this entire season up until now. It's really nice to to get a victory um, from some way other than just being so efficient on offense that uh, um, that no one can stop us. Absolutely, and I think honestly, I think that UConn victory is going to come back and be look be looked at as much more uh, of a you know a rewarding victory. Um, I think UConn is going to improve as the season goes along and. When people look back come tournament time, they're going to say, "Oh, remember this Duke team beat a you know beat that UConn team in you know in the Izod Center." So I think there's going to be a, a much better victory as the season goes along because of UConn's improvement. Yes, despite the fact that UConn has a pretty bad loss to Yale mm-hmm. on their record already, <laughs> we're going to pretend like uh, this isn't the team that lost to Yale that just uh, played a pretty good contest against us. It's a better version of UConn. So. Absolutely. Uh, hey, so for the upcoming week, uh, Duke is on a holiday break. We have no games at all for Christmas week. Next contest isn't until Monday, December 29th against Toledo. But speaking of Christmas, we asked all of you, all of you folks out there in listener land, to help give Duke a Christmas gift. We posted a question on the Duke Basketball Report bulletin board asking you to come up with a solution to the irrational hatred of Duke in the college basketball world. It was a tough, tough question, and most of your answers echoed my my response to this question last week, which is what I said was, you know, the best way to cure the hate is for Duke to lose, and I'm not really prepared for that, and I loved, there was a great comment from a poster named Wilson, who's one of the best commenters on the on DBR. He quoted the Roman Emperor Caligula, and by the way, the DBR is like the only place in the world where you would actually quote Caligula, who said, and I'm going to try, bear with me on my Latin here, I'm not great at Latin, but... <laughs> Caligula said, Odorant dum metuant, which means let them hate so long as they fear. Which it's was perfect. perfect. It is perfect. <laughs> yes. So Wilson, Wilson, my friend, thank you very much for that. Um, Donna, what was your favorite comment or two from uh, from what was on the board? Uh, I definitely enjoyed Billy Dats. Um, and I, I'm going to quote Billy Dat as well. Um, what if the current Duke team and NBA alumni trained as special ops and the influential non-playing team alums trained as diplomats and, led by K, managed to definitively defeat ISIL, broker a lasting Israeli-Palestine peace, solve the Syrian civil war and the various civil wars in Africa, and somehow miraculously united Congress, leading to the next American golden age? It just wouldn't matter, because all of the above would be attributed to a charge call we got with seven minutes left that surely decided the battle. Embrace the hate. It keeps us warm. That was... Pretty much, you know, anything that's that awesome. is going to come back to that. So cheers, Billy. That, that was awesome. That was a great comment. That was a great comment. By the way, a few folks also pointed out that there aren't enough Duke journalists and that our most fervent rival, those guys in, at UNC, have a very well-regarded journalism school that produces a lot of journalists who are able to foster the Duke hate out there in the journalism world. Um, and that one solution would be to have a Duke journalism school and more Duke journalists. By the way, I am a journalist. <laughs> I worked for 20 years at CNN. Keep um, fighting the fight. So, yeah, keep fighting the fight. I'm, I'm working at it. I'm working at it, my friend. Uh, and I think one, the, another one that I, I thought was pretty particular is a little more of a serious note, but it has a joke at the end. Um, you know, Mike Corey, um, one of the, one, in my opinion, one of the best writers, you know, he has the real gift of, 
of the written word. And uh, he recalls a story about going out to eat in Columbus wearing a Ducat and his waitress came over to acknowledge it. And he said, uh, he understands what's coming. I understand. I hope you'll serve me regardless, even though everyone hates Duke. And she paused to reflect on a story where her brother was diagnosed with a brain, rare brain cancer and they couldn't find um, any help. They couldn't afford the help that was offered to them. And uh, she met a, a doctor at Duke who kept her costs to a minimum, took incredible care of everyone, and uh, her brother is now in remission, which is a very good story. But the, the point of it was that she said that they also introduced her brother to Coach K and the team. And the team sent him letters, and Coach K went to hang out with them. And so this waitress walked away with a lot of love in, uh, uh, for Duke because of this. And as people started to cry, Mike Corey lightened the mood by saying, so that's what it takes. And I thought that was kind of a, a nice joke to end what was a serious uh, story. But it, it reflects that sometimes, you know, Duke just has to cure cancer to, uh, <laughs> in order for the hate to cease. But hopefully it wouldn't come to that level. But, I, you know, this was a great story from Mike Corey. Yes, yes. Uh, wonderful thread. I want to thank everyone who participated in it. And by the way, for next week, our question on the Duke Basketball Report Bulletin Board that we'll be looking for answers to is this. Outside of Cameron, what venue in college basketball do you most want to visit? What venue would you like to visit the most? And be sure to tell us why, because if you just put down Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas, we're not going to quote you. If you want to make it on the podcast, you got to give us a, a good why story. That's what will get our attention. So Give us a nice one or two sentence effort. Exactly, exactly. And maybe you'll be, uh, maybe you'll be able to be on the, the podcast along with Donald and Sam and I. Um, hey, uh, we've been talking a little bit about Christmas. Um, Donald, I thought that we would give Christmas presents to the Duke basketball team. Um, and my first Christmas present that I'm going to give – to Duke basketball is I'm going to give a 12 foot jumper to Emil uh, Emil Jefferson uh, because if Emil Jefferson had a 12 foot jumper that he that was really good that he could count on and rely on it would not only be great for Duke but it would be great for him because it would mean that he could earn a really nice living in the NBA someday. Oh yeah, what, what? yeah I think so too. And uh, my first gift uh, is going to go to the NBA. Actually, um, I would love for the NBA to uh, have the gift of two and done. Um, so that we can keep Okafor one more year uh, instead of having him leave after this year. Um, so I think that would be a good gift that would benefit not just Duke, but probably a lot of college basketball fans. Well, you're going to laugh because my second gift was another year of Tyus Jones because I know we're not going to get two and done. We're going to lose Winslow and Okafor, uh, you know, and that's just reality. I'm not even going to ask to keep Winslow and Okafor. That would be unrealistic. That'd be like asking Santa for an entire amusement park in your backyard. Not going to happen. So I'm just going to say that my gift to Duke, my second gift, is that we get to keep Tyus Jones for a couple of years. Because <laughs> uh, I'm starting start, start to get worried that we may lose him as well. What, what's your second gift? My second gift is, is just simply health. Uh, everybody stays healthy. No, everyone, everyone stays in, in complete fit, fitness. And uh, from the coaching staff down to the managers, down to the players, everybody is 100% the rest of the season. No injuries, no more vigils on, on the DBR forums um, for various injuries. Uh, and I extend that to the women's basketball team as well. They've, they've, been, they've been hurt bad recently. So I, I think everybody deserves a little bit of help this, uh, this uh, holiday season. 
Amen to that. Um, absolutely, I echo those Christmas wishes um, for health uh, for for all the players and the coaches and everybody. Um, I agree with you. If, if we stay healthy, um, this year's Duke basketball team has a great chance to to really um, write its name into the record books. My last Christmas gift. I'm going to do a third one. Um, it's going to be that Quinn Cook plays as well in February and March as he has been playing in November and December. From We've seen Quinn have great months in the past. He usually has them early in the season. He's been great the first couple months of this season, um, but we've also seen him in the past cool off as ACC season rolls around, as the NCAA rolls around and things like that. And so my last Christmas gift is that Quinn Cook is just as good down the stretch as he's been out of the starting gate for Duke. That would be spectacular for us and probably very, very frightening for the rest of the NCAA because uh, uh, if he can play this way uh, in March, then everybody needs to look out because we are going to be one hell of a team. Yes, yes. Fingers crossed on all these Christmas gifts. Um, so we're about to wrap things up here on the DBR podcast. Uh, Donald, it's time for our player of the week. I will let you lead it off. Who is your player of the week for Duke this week? My player of the week is Emil Jefferson. Um, I think that he, you know, over the course of the two games against Elon UConn was great and kind of our unsung hero, especially against UConn um, with 13 boards and actually coming up with uh, a couple key blocks, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of key points and just a lot of just hustle basketball that kept us in the fight and kept the distance um, against UConn. So while a lot of people score, maybe score more points and, and have more rebounds, I thought that he was the glue that kept everything together. And for that, he is my player of the week. A, a great choice. And I'll tell you, he was the runner up for me. Um, but I gave the player of the week to Jahil Okafor, who all he did was go for 25 and 20 against Elon on 10 of 14 shooting. 25 and 20? Yeah. Yeah. Is that all he did? And then he had a really nice uh, 12.8 rebound game against UConn. Um, But the reason I really loved what he did against UConn was um, absolutely shut down and destroyed their their center, uh, Amita Brima, who had 40 points in UConn's previous game. 40 points in the previous game. He scored a grand total of zero against Duke. And I know there was more to it than Jahil playing defense on him because Brian had gotten such horrible foul trouble that he only played 13 minutes in the game. But he got in that foul trouble because he was trying to defend what I think is the best post player in America right now in Jahil Okafor. So, Mr. Okafor, you are my player of the week this week. And thank you very much for your performance, sir. And he definitely gave the quote of the week when uh, after the game was asked by uh, Marv Levy on SportsCenter if it was a NCAA tournament-like atmosphere, and he said, I wouldn't know. I'm just a freshman. I haven't played in the tournament yet. Uh, so the dude is still grounded as well. Excellent, excellent, excellent from him and a good catch by you. Um, and, and with that, we're going to wrap it up here on the DBR podcast for uh, for this week, for Christmas week. Um, wishing everybody a, a, a Merry Christmas. Donald, Donald Wine, Merry Christmas to you. You too, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, to Sam Klein, who couldn't join us Uh, because he was so busy talking to Laura Keeley. Sam, I hope you have a good Christmas as well. Thanks a lot for getting that interview with Laura. And uh, that'll wrap it up this week on the DBR podcast.